Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for the willingness to remind us that you love us. We praise you as we come to your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would take what you've written and apply it in our ears and to our hearts and cause us to remember it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I did not pay Father TJ to say it, but I was, ex I am, I believe the, the Holy Spirit does intend things, and I was very happy to hear his opening words to the children this morning. I want to remind you of some things, and that what he wanted to remind us of is that he, that Father TJ loves us. I had uh, written down today this first sentence, God reminds us of his kindness. No matter how many times I, re I return to examine the evidence of Scripture, it never ceases to surprise me just how kind, how generous, how forgiving, and how loving God is. Because Paul prays that we would know the height and the width and the breadth and the depth and to know the love of Christ. It's, it's great. It's enormous. People of the church, do you know that God loves you? He is abundantly full of affection for you. Do you know that even though God hates sin, and even though God has had to rescue each and every one of us from sinfulness, that never has God resented giving salvation to you? Some Christians live under the constant burden of remembering mainly their former unworthiness. It is true that in ourselves, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs from under his table. That's true. But it is more important that, as the next sentence says, it is God's character always to have mercy on his people. You must not live under the weight of condemnation. For in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. If you, O Lord, should mark our iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. A few verses later in the same psalm, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Even though we sin, God's forgiveness is greater, and his love is steadfast. Why take pains at the beginning here to start with this reminder? I start with this reminder because God is a reminding God. I even think, I have 
a memory as a child of hearing a sermon where the pastor pointed out that Peter says, it is good for me to stir you up by way of reminder. And the pastor pointed out that that means that God knows that we constantly forget the truth and that it's okay to say the same thing every Sunday because we forget. That's part of the fall. We forget the truth of God. So I'm here to remind you that God loves you and that he likes loving you. I take pains today to say this because God takes pains to remind us of his character, that he is a forgiving God. And our, uh, our views, our attitudes towards others, and our views of ourselves have to be founded in this basic truth of God's forgiveness. And we regularly need to be nurtured by the repeated reminder of the truth of God's forgiveness of sins. It's in our passage today that we read in Jonah, and it's also in our service. I'm going to shortly get to showing you how it's in the passage, but after we finish, we're going to finish our sermon, we're going to move on with the service, and then we're going to experience it. When we come to the Lord's table, a weekly reminder that he still loves us today and every day. And God has designed his sacraments. I say this because this is going to be a point in the sermon, not just merely rambling off into something else. But I want to say that part of reminding has to do with giving us pictures, and specifically physical pictures, so that we don't forget. God's designed his sacraments as pictures of this forgiveness. You were forgiven. How do you know? Because you were washed. Your, your sins are washed away in baptism. Forever you are clean. God loved you in the moment of your baptism, but he doesn't stop there. He refreshes you by feeding you. And he didn't, he's not a God who threw a party one time, said you could come, and I remember it. It was a great party. He fed me some stuff. It's not a one-time blessing. We eat together every time we meet. At baptism, like a wedding, God said, I do. I do love you. And in the communion, every week, like a million kisses after the wedding, God says to his bride, I still do. This picture, the picture of the sacraments, are also, this, this is also present in our text. And I want to show that. But just in case there's an emergency that prevents me from finishing the sermon, I want to spell this out right here, and then you can relax into hearing the details. Our Father reminds us, by the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, that He is our forgiving Father. He reminds us that he has forgiven our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. I'm not the only one who eats the Lord's Supper. I see a whole bunch of other people going up with me. And all those people receive the same grace as I do. Therefore, you must rest in the certain knowledge 
that God is lavish in his forgiveness. And he is overwhelming in his repeated efforts to tell you that he is never tired of loving you. In issuing you forgiveness, of restoring you, of lifting you up, he does not resent his choice of you. And he does not resent his choice of your brother and your sister who he has forgiven. And he urges us, he insists upon it, that we have the same love for other people that God has forgiven. From Jonah today, we hear that God's character is known to those who have been forgiven. And he insists that we have the same forgiveness towards others. It is part of God's character. Verse 10 said in chapter 3 of Jonah, When God saw what the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah's been sitting there. He set up a booth so he could watch, it says, what happened. How long was he sitting there? Well, how, what, what was Jonah had? He had one sentence in his sermon. I'm sure he, said, he may have said more, but for our sake, we only get a sentence of what Jonah said in summary. Do you know what the sentence was? Yet 40 days and Nineveh is destroyed. That's it. And so how long had Jonah been sitting there waiting to find out whether God did it or not? I think Jonah's been nursing this grudge for 40 days, sitting there waiting with his booth, his, uh, uh, his hut in, uh, in the, off to the side of town, waiting to see if fire comes down. It says in verse 4 of chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, I knew that you are a forgiving God. Sorry, gracious God. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Jonah the prophet knows God's character. Jonah knows God's forgiveness. As the psalm said before, with you there is redemp plentiful redemption. If, you would, if you're going to condemn your people for their sins, no, none of us would stand. But with you there's forgiveness. Jonah quotes, it's as if he's quoting Exodus 34, 6, when they were going to renew, when, when they had to get, Moses had to get the second set of tablets of the law. Before God gives it to him, he declares his name to Moses. And in doing so, he declares his character. The Lord paused before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I knew that you would forgive them if they repented. 
God wants his people to have the same attitude. In verse 4, he asks Jonah, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Is that the right attitude? Have you ever seen an adult ask a, a teenager who isn't happy, is this the right, or do you think this is the right attitude? I remember being a teenager. You know, maybe you remember it too, this, this urge to say back to your parents, yes, I'm right, Father. Brazen. <laughs> the only thing that everyone in the room is certain of is that everyone knows it's wrong, and especially the person saying, I know I'm right knows it's wrong. But we think of these as teenage attitudes because adults are better at hiding these things in our hearts. But God's conversation is with Jonah's heart. And since Jonah isn't quick to see his sin, God provides him with a solid, real-world illustration in this plant. Imagine this plant has had 40 days to grow up until the moment when he doesn't decimate the city. And the next morning, God decimates the plant. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for him there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Do you remember earlier it said that Jonah, when he saw what God did, was exceedingly angry? When he saw the sit, sorry, I don't know what I just said. If I didn't, I was intended to say that God, when God did not punish Nineveh, that Jonah was exceedingly angry. But when God made a plant for him, he was exceedingly happy about a plant, a tree, something had grown up tall enough to shade him there. The image of this passage is of two things. There's two things that are shading Jonah. There is a booth and there is a plant, and they are both for his shade. Uh, the, bo the booth is a sukkah. A sukkah is uh, a, not, a not a tent, but something like what you would build in the wild to go hunting. You, have to, you need to sit in a hut so that you can be out of the shade and wait. In fact, in Scripture, this word even is used for the uh, weeds, that, the tall plants that cover over a crouching lion in a booth of the, of the reeds. So this, uh, this is a shade hut that he has built. But a sukkah, or the plural sukkoth, sukkot, uh, is what we have in the feast of, the feast that we call the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's described in, in uh, Leviticus 23. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce or the fruit of the land, you shall celebrate the Feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day of the fruit, uh, take on the first day the fruit 
of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in Sukkoth when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Uh, We hear a description, and I want to further this because it gives us an extra little important detail in here in Nehemiah 8. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So it's not just leaves. Specifically here, you're supposed to bring olive branches and myrtle branches. These are fruit-bearing tree branches. Some palm palm leaves that are just leafy branches, and some with fruit. And this is what people did. They built a booth, but they let the top of it, they brought branches with them, and they put across the top the branches to be their shade. And I point this out. First first thing I want to point out about here is the shade of a sukkah involves fruit-bearing plants. And the second thing I want to point out is that the goal of the sukkah, as it says in Leviticus, verse 23-43, is to remember the time in the past when God delivered them out of bondage. I want you to think back to coming out of Egypt when you do this. So that's why we're doing this, so you can remember I brought you out of Egypt. Even the sukkah, the Sukkoth in general, are designed as a reminder. This is what I said, God is a reminding God. And he doesn't just remind us with ideas. God likes to give us physical pictures, things that we can repeat yearly, ceremonially, touch, you know, cut down, carry with us, set up, stack up, sit inside it and look around and say, huh, why did I just do all that? Because God wants to remind you that he brought you out of Egypt. You used to be in bondage, but God set you free. You were a sinner, but God's character is always to have mercy. And he wants to remind you, not remind you that you are unworthy, but remind you that he has made you pass out of unworthiness and into worthiness. He's reminding you not of how awful you are. He has to mention how awful you were in order to remind you of how loving he has been. The point is not, if I could have a time to sit down and tell you a story, and we all gathered around, the main thing I'd like to say at this family gathering is, do you remember how awful Uncle Fred used to be? 
But even those of us who have had dramatic changes, that have had times when somebody did something for us, when we think back on those stories, we can't stop and men but mentioning, I used to be, you know, curse worse than a sailor and, you know, do, do X and Y, but God came and he met me. We remember when God changed us and God says, in the making of a sukkah, I want you to remember I brought you out of slavery. So Jonah, here he is, telling the people, God is going to destroy you, so he wants you to repent. I hope they didn't hear that part. He dusts his hands off as he says, I've done my job. I'm just going to go sit down and see if they listen. And they did. And God is merciful. God's not just merciful to relent. He's merciful to have turned their hearts. Because God wanted them to be forgiven. And Jonah knew that was going to happen. Why? Because it's always what God does. Why is Jonah so certain? Because God is always like God. God always forgives repentant sinners. He doesn't, there, Jesus says, those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. I have never turned anyone down who wants, who wants me. I think sometimes as I have spoken to Christians who worry that maybe the, maybe the salvation didn't stick or that something is, Something is coming for them. I know Jesus loves me, but what if I, what if I, you know, what if I don't end up staying with him? You, you need to remember this. God is on your side. God's, it is his character you need to think about. Don't worry your brain overly with the way the mechanism of the universe works. Don't, don't, don't. Try too hard to climb up into the unknowable decrees of God. Just remember this. He's your father, and the way a good father treats a child that he loves is tenderly. And a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. And he doesn't resent you being his child. God asks the question again, verse 9. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Is that something you own, Jonah? Is that plant something that pleases you? Is it something you care about? Is it as valuable as the 120,000 people and all those animals in this town that I own, that please me, that I care about? Now, you might say, well, they were sinners before. Weren't you angry with sin? I think God asks us to leave that to him. And he says, you know, when they repent, I forgive. You know that's how I do. It's every time. When somebody repents, I forgive them. So all those 120,000 Ninevites, Jonah, the moment you saw me not burn it down on day 40, where were your feet running to welcome your brothers? 
Those are your people now. Israel constantly had a problem of hesitating to readmit the Gentiles to God's family. Now, and I just always say this every time I mention something like this. Gentiles were saved by faith in the Old Testament. They didn't even have to convert to being part of Israel. They could be God-fearers. They would die. They would go to heaven. Right? There's, the Bible doesn't teach us that the Gentiles were necessarily outside of God's salvation. The Israelites were called to be his missionary people and to be on the team of missionaries to be inside of that close circle, you had to be a law follower. But the Jews were being told in the time of Jesus, by Jesus, I am now done with this specific work. We're getting to the point where everybody gets to see the Jewish Messiah who kept the Jewish law in the Jewish homeland and has died on a Jewish cross, on a you know, Roman cross in, in Israel and now I don't need this dividing wall anymore. That work is done. And everybody gets to be inside the team of missionaries now. You can have Jewish missionaries, Gentile missionaries. We're all on the same team here now. They hesitated in the past to take the gospel outside of their boundaries. But now it was still a trouble accepting them in as their brothers as we hear in, in the other passage, the gospel passage in our lectionary, the, the parable about the vineyard. And again, I point out what is a vineyard. It's a, it's a field of fruit-bearing trees, just like the, the, the sukkah had fruit-bearing trees over it. And in this vineyard, the people who worked there, the people who had been there the whole time, resented the fact that some new people were going to get just as much goodness at the end of the day as the people who had been there laboring under the hot sun all day. And we hear in verse 15, the master of the field says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Jonah, do you care about that plant? Can I do with what I want with the stuff that belongs to me too? And the master in, in Matthew 20, 15 says, or do you begrudge my generosity? Are you really upset about me being kind? Are you, former sinner, upset about me being kind to somebody? Because I, you know, you don't have to be forgiven by me. Remember we had the parable last week where, I don't know if it was last week, recently, where the, the master forgives a gigantic debt and the one who's forgiven goes out and throttles the guy who has a little debt. And, and then the master comes along and says, okay, this guy, throw him back in the prison till he's paid it all. Apparently he didn't want forgiveness. Now that's a parable. But notice here, Jonah has this terrible attitude. Jonah's the guy who's called to the work. He has this terrible attitude. And Jonah is our guy. How do we know what happened to Jonah? How do we know what God said to Jonah? How do we know what Jonah's attitude was? Well, presumably it's because Jonah's the one who told us. Which means that Jonah 
thought better. And not only was thought better of his sins after his rebuke from God, but was humble enough to tell us a true report of how stupid he had been to presume that God who was gracious to him couldn't be gracious to others. And there's mercy for Jonah. So I'm not saying if you have a hard time with some other people, end of the road for you, back to the prison. I think that that's a a point being made for you to shock yourself into, oh, I guess I should forgive. But God is merciful even, even with you who have already had mercy. You know that uh, in uh, the parable of the prodigal son, that the father comes out and the uh, older brother says, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, you hear that, that attitude? When this son of yours as if son of yours doesn't get rid of the right to say this one to him. This son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. How did he celebrate? By throwing a feast. Food, wine, given as a celebration. I keep bringing that point home about the fruit trees and the fruit on the branches and the vineyard and the celebration here because what Jonah had was a tree growing up that was withered without bearing fruit. And how did he get to Nineveh? He got to Nineveh on a fast car. He got to Nineveh in the most unorthodox way to travel to any missionary journey that we know of inside the belly of the fish. And the fish is traveled through the heart of the sea. We have this beautiful psalm from, this, from Jonah in the midst of the fish where he knows about his death and his resurrection and his forgiveness. But he's traveling through the sea, and that is a picture of baptism. Quick questions about Jonah's connection with baptism. Do you know that Jonah is a word that means dove. And the dove is that which Noah sent out. And when does the dove land? It lands when Jesus is baptized. It lands on Jesus at Jesus' baptism. Jonah and Noah are both water pictures of traveling from sin to the place of God's forgiveness through water. They are pictures of baptism except that I think that Jonah's boat was less comfortable than Noah's boat. But both baptism and the plant, the fruit-bearing plant that grows up to give us the wine of communion are present in the book of Jonah. And even if you don't think that that's what it's talking about, 
That fish is a physical reminder of something to Jonah, and that plant is a physical reminder of something. And in these other stories that Jesus tells, the story of a physical uh, story of a reminder that people should forgive their brothers and sisters, it was in a vineyard. And in the story of the prodigal son, they threw a feast. And today, after the sermon is over, you will attend a feast. And that feast is offered here every Sunday. A physical reminder of two, at least two things, at least these two things. You have a relationship with God by forgiveness. Let me just go ahead and make it three because then I can complete the triangle here. You have a forgiving relationship with God and the others around you have a forgiving relationship with God. And that places you both in the same family. So it, when you have the communion table, it tells you that you belong to each other. And that's why Paul got so upset in 1 Corinthians when the, the rich are going ahead with their meal and leaving the poor outside. He says, by these things you despise the church of God. And he says that some of you have gotten sick. Why? Because you are not discerning the body. A phrase that means you are not recognizing who else is in the church. You are not recognizing the body. He doesn't say discerning the body and blood. He says discerning the body. We must, in these physical reminders of baptism, recognize all of us are washed. And in communion, that all of us eat together. We are one. It says, uh, it says that we have one bread in 1 Corinthians 10, therefore we are one body. And it also says we were baptized into one body and made to drink of one spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So within a few verses in 1 Corinthians, he says the body is all baptized, everybody eats, everybody drinks. What's the point? Everybody taking these physical signs is forgiven like you. I just want to close with, a, with a, a, an encouragement for you. When you get into the moments where you need to remember this, when you get into the moments where you have a hard moment and you feel like, uh, I did that same thing again, and I'm not sure if God wants me to church on Sunday. Or I did it again, and I'll go, I'm going to go to church on Sunday, but I'm not sure if all the stuff the pastor says actually applies to me because maybe I'm not a Christian because I did that sin. I want you not to rely on the question of what your action is. I want you to rely on the question of the character of your father. Would my father love his child? Would he forgive? He says over and over that he will. Is it true? If, if you're worried about God's law being true, then you need to worry about his gospel being true. If you're worried about the condemnations against sin being true, and I don't mean worry, you need to also count it as true that in Christ there is no condemnation, neither for you nor for your forgiven brothers. Let's pray.
Father, who else would we want to worship? Who else could treat us like this? Who has the power to forgive sins? Who has the wealth of grace to be able to endure sin after sin, even after we've come to you? But your grace is overwhelming. Seventy times seven. Steadfast love. Thank you, God, for these encouragements and promises. Thank you that we get to remember every week that you still love us. Please grow our hearts to being compassionate to others and make it a part of our personal character that we too would always be merciful with your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.